Good morning, St. Peter's. This is Preston here. Unfortunately, our audio this past Sunday, June 10th, was not recorded. So I am here in the studio, as it were, to preach the sermon that was originally delivered on Sunday, June 10th, on the topic of forgiveness. So if you will join with me together in prayer, we'll begin. Jesus Christ, Son of God, we come to you and ask this morning, this day, will you speak to us? Will you open our eyes to see your truth, open our hearts to hear your word, open our minds to receive your eternal life afresh today? Will you soften us to receive what you have in store for each one of us? In your holy name we pray. Amen. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. These are the words of Nadine Collier on June 19th, 2015. Two days prior, her mother and eight other African-Americans were gunned down by Dylan Roof during a Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Two days after the shooting, Nadine faced Dylan and spoke these dramatic words that shook the world. I forgive you. Well, we're in a series called Practices here at St. Peter's, and we're exploring how our faith is not just a set of intellectual ideas, but a way of life, a practice. And remember, a healthy practice achieves two things. It keeps us attached to Jesus for the sake of the world. It always keeps us attached to Jesus, and it's always for the sake of the world. And today, the practice we'll explore goes right to the heart of our faith, right to the heart of God. It is forgiveness. Nadine Collier's story shows us just how difficult and seemingly strange the practice of forgiveness can be. Our goal today is to clarify some important questions we may have about forgiveness, like why is it that we even forgive? And what is forgiveness? And as we have continually done in this series, we'll ask about forgiveness. How does it root us to Jesus and allow us to abide in him? And how is it for the sake of the world? Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew, the tax collector, one of Jesus's 12 disciples. Matthew records an exchange between Jesus and Peter, another one of the 12 disciples, and our namesake here at St. Peter's Fireside on the topic of forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18. Now, often in the gospel stories, Peter sets the stage for Jesus's teaching through his honest questions and hasty assumptions. And this passage is no exception. Jesus has been teaching about life together in the community of believers, particularly about what to do when people in a community hurt one another. In other words, Jesus has been teaching on reconciliation, how to reestablish relationships that have been broken within a community. Now, in the midst of this conversation, Peter interrupts. He raises his hand and asks a question, a more particular question, about forgiveness. Now, before I go, we go further, I want to clarify these terms, forgiveness and reconciliation, as they can be easily confused. So forgiveness first. Forgiveness is personal. It's not necessarily relational. 
Forgiveness includes recognizing the wrong done to me, feeling the full weight of the offense, and then thirdly, releasing the offender from the debt. So it's recognizing a wrong done, feeling the full weight of this offense, not minimizing it, and releasing the offender from the debt. Now, on the other hand, reconciliation is relational. It occurs after forgiveness from one party and repentance from the other that's turning from the wrong. After these have occurred, reconciliation can happen. And this is the restoration of a relationship and moving towards a renewed common fellowship between the two parties, whatever this can look like. Now, both of these are essential aspects of the gospel. However, in our passage today, and the topic that we're exploring is specifically forgiveness, not reconciliation. They don't mean the same thing, and forgiveness does not always lead to reconciliation. Now that we've cleared that up, let's go back to Peter's question on forgiveness in Matthew 18, verse 21. He says, okay, Jesus, okay, let's get down to it. How how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter asks a question, then answers it himself. Seven times, Jesus? And in his mind, this is generous. Jewish rabbinical teaching had held at that time that the limit to forgiving an offense against a person was three times. And on the fourth offense, forgiveness was not required. So seven times seemed generous, right? He's going above and beyond the norm. And let's be honest, to forgive a friend or a roommate or a spouse seven times does seem like a lot. Consider if I came into the office and Alistair had trashed my desk, thrown my books all over the place, and wrecked my houseplant. I would be really upset. It would be really hard to forgive him. But I could work through it. I could release the debt and forgive him. Now think about if I came into the office the next morning and he had done the exact same thing, just wrecked my stuff, broken my computer, thrown my books all over the place. It would be really hard to forgive him the second day in a row, but okay, I could work through it and release it and forgive him. Now what if he did that every single day for seven days? On that seventh day, it would be really, really hard to forgive Alistair. I don't know if I could do it. I'm just trying to make the point that forgiving seven times is a lot. But Jesus takes that and he pushes it to the extreme. He says, no, Peter, not seven times. Try 77 times and you'll begin to understand the gospel. And then Jesus launches into a parable. Now, when you, whenever you see Jesus launching into a parable, be prepared. Parables were not Jesus' simple sermon illustrations or moral of the story, Aesop's fables. Jesus was a storyteller and he taught about the kingdom of God. He taught about theology, which simply means what we think about God through stories. And he did so in a subversive way, always undercutting the other stories people were living as a part of. See, Jesus's parables are invitations for his listeners to consider the world from a different point of view to pause, to enter in, and to think, how might my world change if the wild reality told about in this story, in this parable, were somehow true? Jesus' parables don't fit the way we see things. 
the way our world seems to work or what makes sense to us because he's describing life in a different kingdom, in a different world altogether, the kingdom of God that Jesus was actually inaugurating as the king. So let's see what Jesus has to say about forgiveness in his kingdom to Peter and the disciples and to us in this parable in Matthew 18. Here's the main idea we'll be exploring in the parable. It's that we can forgive because our entire life has been forgiven. We can forgive because our entire life has been forgiven. Jesus begins to tell a story of two servants who are both in debt. Now the first is in serious debt to the king, 10,000 talents worth of debt. His debt is so big that it would have been laughable to those listening to Jesus. It's inconceivable for an individual to owe that much, actually. 10,000 is the largest number that a Greek numeral exists for, and a talent is the largest unit of money Jesus could have used in the time. It's actually a weight. A talent would have been saying, a talent of silver, for example, is a measurement of money. His point is that this debt is ridiculously, impossibly large and, and absolutely unable to be paid. For us, it would be like saying, this guy owed the king zillions of dollars. Yet when the man is called to account to pay his debt to the king, he begs for forgiveness. He pleads, and he says, with enough time, I will pay. And the master has mercy. Amazingly, he forgives the debt. He erases it, he sets him free, and he releases the servant on his way. Yet the servant is clearly unaware of what has just happened. He doesn't get it. There's no way he could have gotten it because of what he does, does next. The depth of the debt has no bearing on him. He's completely oblivious. We know this because he then finds his fellow servant who lent him in, a son, in, in comparison a sum that was nothing. His own debt was so much bigger. The debt that his servant owed him was pennies in comparison. So he finds his fellow servant and he insists on being paid back on the spot. He insists on his rights. I deserve this money. It is mine and I want it right now. His fellow servant cannot pay immediately. So the first servant has him locked up in a debtor's prison until his sum can be owed. Now the other servants around see this great act of injustice and they report it to the king who cannot believe the hardness of his servant's heart who did this. He takes it as a slap in the face. The king then turns the first servant over to the jailers until his insurmountable, impossible debt can be paid. Okay, now what then is Jesus trying to show Peter and the disciples about forgiveness in his kingdom through this parable? Now, there's two important pieces to the story we first need to attend to. The size of the debt and the condition of the first servant's heart. That's the size of the debt and the condition of the heart. If we don't sit with the size of the debt the first servant owes the king, we're really going to miss the point. One commentator observes that the entire revenue of the province of Galilee, it's like the county where Jesus lived, in a year was around 300 talents. This man owned 10,000 talents. The debt he owed was simply impossible. There was no working it off. 
But somehow, even though, the, even though the debt is so big, the first servant doesn't get it. And it's because the condition of his heart keeps him from grasping the size of his debt. Let's look at what he says in Matthew 18, verse 26. He makes an offer. He says to the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. But no amount of time is going to help him. The truth is he could not pay back his debt in many lifetimes. He is not repentant. He ignores his hopeless state of affairs. He does not acknowledge any mistakes. This man's blind belief in his self-sufficiency keeps him from grasping the size of his debt. It keeps him from understanding the kind of forgiveness he needs, which is total forgiveness. And because of this, he is unwilling to forgive his fellow servant a fraction of the debt he is pardoned from. His heart is hard because he doesn't think he needs forgiveness. He thinks that with enough time, he can sort it out on his own. This, this, this servant shows us that it is very hard to forgive when we don't think we need to be forgiven. I'll say that again because it's really important. It is very hard to forgive when we don't think we need to be forgiven. And to Peter and to the apostles and to us, to me and to you, this is what Jesus was saying. You have accrued a magnificent debt. I mean, you've really done it. There's no paying this one off. You've maxed out a hundred credit cards and you haven't paid them in years. You've taken out loans on your loans and are still totally oblivious to what you're doing. You're in too deep. You're hopelessly drowning in your debt and it's going to kill you. Now you've heard a lot of people in your reckless habits too, but guess what, says Jesus, guess what? I'm the one who owned the banks. You've been robbing me the whole time. I'm the one you're in debt to, and I forgive you. I release you from your debt. I'm wiping it away. It is gone. You are free. Go and spend no more. Now, this is amazing news, is it not? It's amazing news, but it is only good news if we believe that we actually do have this debt. Not only as an idea, but to feel the weight of it as we do when we feel financial debt wrapping around our lives, when we feel our credit card debt rising. This debt Jesus is talking about, of course, is sin. Now, I realize we don't usually think about ourselves and others with the category of sin. I realize it is easy to live the cultural narrative that we're all decent people striving on our way to humanistic utopia. And yes, each of us has our own baggage and imperfections and the like, but at the core, we are good people and certainly not sinners lost in our depravity. So let me offer one way to understand what scripture means by sin. It is our loyalty and trust in anything other than God in anything we put our ultimate hope in. It is sin because it is a lie. Whatever it is cannot satisfy the ultimate longings and desires we ask it to. It cannot carry this weight. Now for Rocky Balboa, have, has anyone seen the movie Rocky Balboa, the original one? I haven't seen it, but I watched lots of YouTube videos to educate myself. That's how I know this story. 
for Rocky Balboa that it I'm talking about was going the distance with his prize fighter opponent Creed, making it to the end of the fight without getting knocked out. In a moment of vulnerability before his fight, Rocky confesses that if I can just go the distance, I'll know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Sin is the loyalty to that thing that you go after, that I go after, so that you'll know you're worth something, so that you know you're just not another bum. For Adam and Eve, it was obtaining the knowledge of good and evil. For David, it was sexual affirmation. For the nation of ancient Israel, time and again, it was worshiping the gods of their surrounding culture. For you and me today, it's probably some of these things too. But it could also be our bank account, our upward mobility, our social activism, the success of our children, or even our Instagram account. It's that thing you do, the loyalty to that thing you do that you're so committed to so that deep down you know that you're not a bum, that you're worth something. This is sin. This is our debt. This is that 10,000 talents. Every thought and desire and dream that we take comfort and peace and satisfaction in that is not submitted to Jesus Christ, that we cannot honestly hold out in our hands and lay before God and say, God, thy will be done, not mine. The trick is we often don't recognize these loyalties until they fail us and crumble under the weight of our hopes. This is our debt. And friends, it's insurmountable. Now, when we ignore this debt and decide we can handle things on our own, we'll be like the first servant. We'll be blind. And the practice of forgiveness will make no sense to us. Because if we can handle things competently, then so should everyone else. We will struggle to forgive. Because again, it is very hard to forgive when we don't think we need to be forgiven. But through the Spirit, through the Spirit working in us, when we recognize our false loyalties and just how magnificent the size of this debt is, then we can also recognize the magnificence of our Savior. And seeing Jesus' truly amazing grace over every aspect of our lives, over every breath we take, frees us to practice forgiveness because the whole of our life has been forgiven. And this is how the practice of forgiveness roots us in Jesus. It starts with seeing the magnificence of our debt and the magnificent forgiveness of our Savior. And from this place, we're able to repent and turn from our wrongs and to become people who can also forgive others their wrongs because our hearts have been softened by the grace of our Savior. It's how we become what R.T. France called the church, which is the community of the forgiven. Because of Jesus, we are the community of the forgiven. It is who he has made us. Knowing this truth about ourselves is what allows us to release the debts of others when we are hurt. And practicing forgiveness returns us to Christ and furthers us in this identity as the community of the forgiven. 
it roots us in him because we must return to to the one who has forgiven us in order to have what it takes to forgive other people you can probably see how this practice of forgiveness like all of our christian practices is another way to abide in christ and to remain in his love but jesus however doesn't stop here he takes it another step in the parable and considers the flip side what if we don't forgive what if i'm unwilling to forgive in verse 35 Jesus echoes the same teaching he gives right after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that if we do not forgive, neither will the Father forgive us our sins. These are strong words, are they not? And as with every word of Scripture, we must take them seriously. What is Jesus saying? We have to deal with them if we're to take Scripture seriously. If we look at the whole scope of Jesus' teaching, when it comes to God withholding forgiveness, the most notable teaching is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 30, verse 31. Jesus there is speaking with the religious teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they believe his power comes from Satan. His ability to cast out demons is from Satan. And in this context, Jesus looks at them and says to them, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the the Spirit will not be forgiven. They, the religious elite who know the scriptures better than anyone, are blaspheming the Spirit of God by aligning God with Satan and placing themselves in full opposition to the good purposes of God. This is what will not be forgiven, outright rejection of God. Now, in Jesus' conclusion to the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, I don't think he is trying to add to this teaching. I do think his warning is serious, and it means that if our hearts are too hard to forgive, then we do not know who God truly is. Something is off. Our eyes are hazy. We're not seeing Jesus clearly, and we're in need of deeper conversion. And over time, if this is the continual state of our heart, holding on to bitterness and hate, not only will it destroy us, but it reveals we haven't grasped something foundational about the gospel. We haven't grasped that the one who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive the backstabbers and the murderers, the ones who betrayed him and spit on him and tortured him and laughed at his suffering the one who was ultimately innocent. We haven't grasped that all of this was for us. Now, I know these are difficult words from our Lord. And I want to say particularly to those of you who have been deeply hurt, abused, and wronged, you too are called to forgiveness. But that forgiveness will be a journey. Reconciliation, remember, is different and sometimes may not be possible. But remember the steps we talked about earlier about forgiveness? Let's review them again. First, it's recognizing the wrongs done and feeling the full weight of them. This means not downplaying the wrongs. It means not brushing them off with a, it's not a big deal, I'll just forgive about it. 
forget about it when things are a big deal. This isn't forgiveness. Pretending like the wrongs done did not hurt us is actually calling evil good. It's a lie. So we must be willing to name evil. Because in healthy relationships, ignoring the hurt will sow seeds of resentment that can destroy a relationship. And in unhealthy relationships, it can keep, it can keep people locked in destructive patterns of abuse for years and years. So first, we must recognize the wrongs done and feel the full weight of them. And second, and the harder part of forgiveness, is releasing the offender from the debt. It means saying, what you did hurt me, and I allow myself to feel the full weight of it. I do not minimize what was done or its effects on me. I was hurt. And as part of the community of the forgiven, the people called Christian because we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, I also forgive you and release you. I do not hold a grudge or bitterness against you. Now, the initial decision to forgive is incredibly important. And then follows the release of the debt. And this can sometimes be quick or it can sometimes be an ongoing process that can last for years. Now, if you're on this journey of forgiveness, you're going to have ups and downs. And the practice for you is to continue returning to Jesus, to abide in him and laying your wounds at his feet, opening your wounds and your hurt to him and seeing his wounds for you, knowing that they are for you and receiving his abundant grace. And from that place again, releasing the debt. This is why even in the most difficult circumstances, we are still called to forgive because it returns us to the greatest place of our healing, which is the heart of our Savior. And how is this really for the sake of others? Well, when we know the forgiveness of Jesus, we know it is for the sake of others because it shows the subversive power of the gospel to the world. That the gospel isn't built on revenge and on power games, how the world works, but it's for the sake of others because if the church is the community of the forgiven, it must be a forgiving community that joins in God's redemption of the world by saying we are people who forgive because we are forgiven. We love because Jesus first loved us. On no recent story better represents how forgiveness is for the sake of the world, more so than the story of Nadine Collier and her forgiveness. A year after she forgave Dylan Roof, she shared in a Washington Post article that she hasn't moved on in many ways. She grieves the loss of her mother. She has ups and downs. She has to continually return to forgiveness. But a year later, she still believed that forgiving was the right thing to do. Forgiveness is power, she said. It means you can fight everything and anything head on. How is forgiveness power? This is how. Forgiveness is a practice of power because it joins us to Jesus, 
who has forgiven a debt that we truly cannot fathom. It's bigger and larger than anything we can think of. Forgiveness is, is a practice of power because it shows others that the wrongs done to us and to others, they do not have the last say, but that there is a greater power at work within us bringing healing and restoration to the world and forgiveness witnesses to that. It shows the world that that power is alive and within us. It is the power of God's spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and is indeed still working to heal all things in our broken world.